many of you know that the Protestant Reformation began in earnest on October 31st, 1517. Halloween. No, it wasn't Halloween. Uh, but on that day, and on that day, Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses, these 95 theological statements which he hoped to persuade uh, the Roman Catholic leaders at the time to embrace on the grounds of, of being biblical. Uh, and, and what you might not know, though, is, is what the very first of these theses actually says. You might not know what any of them say. We tend to just take them all as a general statement. Well, here's what the very first one says. It says, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. We'll circle back to that. And so last week, James was writing about the, the conflict between Christians. Hopefully you remember that. It was only seven days ago. Uh, and he called us out for not praying, or, or maybe for praying, but doing so in a selfish manner uh, for our selfish desires. Uh, James said that we have committed spiritual adultery against God. Uh, and remember, we ended with those words in verse 6, uh, but God gives more grace. Uh, and remember, these are not the words of rejection. These are the words of love and mercy of our, our God that desires our back, us back. You see, despite our unfaithfulness, our our merciful God invites us back into fellowship with Him. He invites us back into wholeness with Him. And our, our passage today is in a lot of ways then this, this how-to or this picture of what it looks like for us when we have, find ourselves deep in sin or even little sin, how we return to God, how we return to the Lord. And as, as Luther asserted in the very first of his theses, right, this means repentance, and, and not just this one-time repentance, right, as, as we think of it sometimes as coming to faith in Jesus, as if that's the only time we're ever going to repent in our life, but it's this ongoing, lifelong repentance. And so I need you to know from the start that the central theme of this passage in James 4 is repentance, which is a little weird because the word repentance doesn't even show up in this text. Instead, James is going to show us, vividly show us, you and me, how it is that we, we, we are to walk the, the lifelong path of repentance. And that, that inevitably means embracing a heart, uh, a posture rather, of humility. And the reason for this is that, that repentance and humility are just indelibly twisted into each other, intertwined with each other. You can't have one without the other. Uh, li li listen to what Augustine said. This is 1,600 years ago. And keep in mind, this is Augustine, who we know his life story, and he was an incredibly prideful man before coming to Christ, and it continued to be something he struggled with. But listen to what he said. He said, should you ask me what is the first thing in re religion I should, I should reply, that the first and the second and the third thing also is humility. He sees it as this foundational aspect. We're going to see that today. So let's, let's go ahead and read the passage. We're going to see what God has to teach us today from, from James chapter 4. We're going to pick up in verse Six, and we'll read the ten today. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we have uh, so much to learn in your word about ourselves and about you. Enlighten our minds and open our hearts as we come 
desiring to understand and to be changed by your precious word this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So we've just read it. Hopefully you're able to catch on and see this right, but this passage is, is bookended with this, this concept of humility. It, it's bookended, right? It, it begins with uh, the, the need for humility that gets introduced in verse 6 at the very start, and then the call to actually humble ourselves we're going to see in verse 10. Everything in between then is, is showing us how to pursue humility, how, how to do so through, through repentance. Uh, and, and so let's, let's, that's what we're seeing. Let's look at it beginning in verse 6, right? Here we see it in introduced. And right in verse 6, right off the bat, we have this, this trigger word, uh, not in the modern sense of that term, but this, uh, this word that kind of triggers in us to remember that, that silly question. If you haven't heard it, here it is, right? Whenever you see therefore in Scripture, you've got to ask, what is therefore, therefore? Uh, it's silly, but it actually helps you to draw out, draw out things in, in the passages of Scripture when you're reading on your own even. Uh, so here, in this instance, therefore comes in response to that beautiful statement we, we read in the introduction, right? But God, he, God gives more grace. The, the therefore is explaining then a, a condition of heart that is necessary for us to actually receive grace. And, and you think about that. I, I don't know if it's a perfect analogy, just trying to think on the fly here. But um, if you go to catch a ball, someone throws something to you, there's a posture you have ready to catch it, right? It's not this. It doesn't go well if that's it. And so there's just posture uh, for actually receiving grace in this sense. And, and, and James is, is actually referencing back to the Proverbs here, Proverbs 3.34, when he says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble here. That's a reference to James, or Proverbs 3. Now, pride has been called the deadliest of sin. And here's the reason why. Because every sin that we actually commit grows out of that fertile soil of pride. That's where it comes from. For pride leads us to, to even violate the, the first commandment, right? And, and all those after. You think about it, though. You, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, it, it violates that because pride, in pride, rather, we elevate ourselves above God. We, we esteem ourselves. We exalt ourselves, right? That, you know, I am who is most important in any given moment. I am actually a pretty amazing person, God. You should be amazed by me. Uh, in, in our day and age, we, we, we tend to just dismiss pride, if we're honest. We're, none of us say, oh, pride's great, it's wonderful, typically not anyway. But we do dis disregard it as, eh, it's a character flaw. It's, not, it's just, just a little thing, no big deal. And, and, and God's word does not treat pride that way at all. Does, dis, does not dismiss pride at all. For Proverbs 16.5, we read, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. If that's not clear enough, in Proverbs 8.13, God says that he hates pride and arrogance. He hates pride and arrogance. But, but in our text, along with this statement of God's opposition to pride, we also see this beautiful promise, don't we? That God gives grace to the humble. That's a wonderful thing. Now, in one sense, it is fair for us to say that even humility is a gift of God. It's nothing that you and I conjure up, and, and all of Scripture attests to the fact that no one rejects sin, including pride, unless the Holy Spirit enables us to actually do so. And yet, God gives us instructions for pursuing an internal posture of humility, an actual, an actual humility within us. And we, we see two of these instructions in verse 7. Have a look here in a minute, because, um, and I want you to understand, these are opposite sides of the same coin here. Uh, and, and first, we'll look at the first side of that coin, and that's this. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's what it says there. That's a command. And that's a command with an amazing promise. We see a lot of those in this passage. 
Uh, first of all, while, while the Bible does not fully answer all the questions we have about the devil, let's just admit that outright. You want to know more about the devil than you were ever told in Scripture, and, and, and that's God's prerogative. He tells you all that you need to know about the devil. And one of the things we do know, is, it's very clear, is that Satan is indeed a real force in the world. Uh, there are many who believe he's a fallen angel based on some passages. We, we know that Satan hates God. We know that he hates you. In 1 Peter 5, 8, uh, it compares the devil to a roaring lion that is, uh, that is seeking someone to devour. That's not a pretty picture of, of a, a, an angel, a demon, right? And so it would be foolish for us to pretend that the devil does not exist or to simply disregard it, just pretend like it's nothing. That there is a spiritual being with an army of demons who means to lead you away from God is something we need to know about. Now, on the other hand, the devil is not equal in power or authority to God. Don't ever acknowledge that. Don't ever assume that. He's not even close. And you can't blame the devil on everything. Too many Christians tend to do that. Anything they do wrong, the devil made me do it. You are more than capable, and you know it. You know it, right? You are more than capable of sinning on your own. And, 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 and the other part is that we, we should never live in fear of the devil. Aware of him, cautious, but not fear of the devil. Because, Christian, you are united with Christ. And, and so the power of, of the devil over you is broken. It's not that he has no power, but he does not have his ultimate power over you. You can resist the devil's temptations. Now, now listen, God doesn't do the resisting for you. And that's an important thing for us to understand. Don't, don't ever confuse potential for resisting the devil which, you know, or sin, which the Holy Spirit does provide for us with responsibility for, res for resisting. Resisting is an active thing that you must do. And to resist the devil means that we resist giving in to temptations on the one side, and, and it means that we are submitting to the Lord on the other side of that coin. Uh, before, before we get into that, let me give you a few practical ways to resist the devil. And then the first is this. And when I say devil, understand, I mean any sin or any temptation, right? You're probably not going to be able to identify where it's coming from in a lot of ways. Uh, but first, embrace absolutely that the word of God is the rule of your heart and your life. This is what rules your life. Uh, make it your life's ambition to, to live in joyful obedience to what these scripture teachers. Along those lines, which we've already seen in, in James, right, to pursue genuine wisdom that is from above, which brings you back to the Scripture, right? Don't, don't just know the Scriptures intellectually. Don't just be, be wise. Don't just be able to impress your friends with all the things you know, but be corrected, be changed, be formed by, by all that God has teaches us in the Scripture. Let this form your life. The, these words are a weapon against the temptations of the devil in your life. And, and remember that when Satan is... Uh, in, in the form of the serpent, uh, tempting Adam and Eve, right? That's exactly what he does. He, he leads them to question the word. He, he led them to ask, you know, what does this really say? Does it have an authority over me? And he, he, he asked them, right, did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And, he, and Eve knows, well, that's not right. And she comes to correct him and she says what God actually says, only she's, she doesn't say it right. She, she's not right. She's not accurate. She adds her own little bit. Well, God said we can't touch or eat any of these trees. And the devil leads them to distrust God when he says, listen, you won't actually die. In fact, if you eat this fruit, you're going to be just like God. Right? And then it puts that little thing in your thought. So that's why God didn't want me to have this fruit. Right? He wants to keep something good from me. Um, Adam and Eve, they, you probably know this already, they don't resist the devil in that instance. Uh, 
the second Adam, which is a name that's given to, to Christ, right? Jesus, our Lord, was also tempted by the devil in the wilderness. We've talked about that a few times recently. If you remember, there were three times that he was tempted, and every time Jesus confidently and accurately quotes Scripture back to the devil. But he doesn't just quote it as if this empty thing, right? But he does it in a way that communicates, I, I will not listen to you, devil. I will obey the authoritative Scriptures here. Now, you might be tempted today to disregard the scriptures as an authority over you. And I know we, don't, we won't admit that. It's not like we go through life and, as Christians, you know, and like, I have nothing to do that. But, but it shows up in the way we actually live our lives, that, that to, we just kind of disregard it. Or, or, or like the devil in the garden, to, to say, you know what, it probably, what it seems to say or what it clearly says is, is not what it says, that kind of thing. You know, you know how many times uh, over my life, I, I did youth ministry before uh, coming out here to church this church plan anyway, how many times I've heard someone essentially say, did God actually say we shouldn't have sex outside of a marriage commitment? And begin to dig in and question that sort of thing, or, or replace that with a, a half dozen of other topics, right, and in the, in the, with the same question, did God actually say that? A anyway, whenever you find yourself in temp temptation, remember the word, but, but also remember to be constantly in, in prayer during this time of, of temptation, Prayer is a shelter for your soul. And so engage in prayer that way. Ask for wisdom to know, you know, is, is this the devil or is this just my own evil heart right now? Ask God to bring to mind scripture that you've read that, that speaks to this. Ask for endurance as you continue resisting. Those are the things we need to do. And so then the promise of our resisting the devil is that he will flee from us. And so your aim is to resist the devil until he flees. And think about that, until he flees, because sometimes we'll think, oh, I resisted, you know, 30 seconds, and then I gave in. You ever seen that marshmallow thing where the kid's told, if you can wait here for 15 minutes, you get two marshmallows, but if you eat the marshmallow, you only get one, and they sit there and they're like, oh, I resisted for two minutes, and they eat it. You know, it's that keep on, that continue to resist and, and, and for, until the devil flees. And, and again, when, when Jesus in the wilderness, right, he resisted the devil three times. And after the third time in Mark 4.10, Jesus says, be gone, Satan. And, and so, you know, have that little phrase. Be, be free to use that phrase if you want when you're in the face of temptation. Be, be gone, Satan. And in the very next verse in Mark, right, uh, we, we read that then the devil left him. That's the promise of God there that we see. You know, if you, is that the devil will flee from you. You always see that picture of the, the kid being bullied, right? Can you imagine if, if all you had to do was actually resist the bully and he would flee from you, how powering that would be? That's reality for us. If we resist the devil, he will flee. And that doesn't mean he won't tempt us again, right? Again, and Jesus in the wilderness, he, he resists the devil, right? But we, we read at the end there, right? He departed from Jesus until an opportune time, meaning he's not going to give up ultimately, but he's giving up right now. Then that's a reality. Say, say you're alone at night and tempted to engage in pornography, and so you pray, and, and you remember Matthew 5, 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with, him, with her in his heart. And, and you remember the encouragement of 1 Corinthians 10, 13, right? That, that God won't permit you to be tempted beyond what you are able to resist. And that gives you strength, you know, because you know it's, it's possible. And so you keep resisting until the temptation subsides. Hallelujah. But you know that temptation will come again at a later time. The same as any sin you throw in there, right? You, you, you resist sharing some gossip that you just want to tell someone because they would be interested in whatever it is you'd learn from someone and, and, and you resist it. Hallelujah. 
But you know that later on, there's going to be some moment, something in you that says, now I should tell her. Now I should tell him what I just learned, whatever it might be. Um, and, and you're going to feel that again. And, but uh, see, listen to what Dan Doriani says here. He says, if you succumb, Satan does not flee. He sits on the couch with you. And since sin has pathways, failure to resist on one occasion makes it harder to resist, on, resist, resist temptation on the next chance opportunity. And the same goes the other way too, right? We find that when we are resisting sin and we find success in that, that that builds up that strength for the next time. You want it. It's just you, you know, proof, of, proof of concept that you can. And so we commit ourselves then to, in, in obedience to God's word here, we commit ourselves to resisting the devil. And the other half of verse 7 gives the highest form of resisting the devil. Uh, look at what James says. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Submit yourselves therefore to God. As we submit to God, we are by definition also resisting the devil. One changes into the other. Now, now this word submit in our language, it, it, we think of it as just passive, right? You, you sit there and you take it, no matter what we're talking about. You just verbal beating, whatever it might be. In the Greek, which is what James is writing in, it's a compound word, and it's bringing together the, the term meaning arrange and the term meaning under, right? To arrange under. If you're submitting to God, you are arranging your life under the authority of, of God, um, certainly one clear way to do that is obeying God's explicit commands in Scripture. But you know we can get real quick into just the letter of the law there. Uh, it's also arranging our way of life under God's general direction. For instance, uh, the Good Samaritan, right? We, we learn that here we're seeing God is, has this heart for people that are in need. And so in submission to God, we can have compassion or in compassion act when we, when we see anyone in a position of great need. That's a way of submitting our lives under God. Uh, submitting to God is when you not begrudgingly, but willingly yield to God. Yield to God's word, yield to God's way, yield to God's purposes. And you know to the degree that you've actually experienced that, submitting to the Lord can be incredibly freeing. Now, submission is not an optional add-on to the Christian life. It's not like guac on your burrito. Submission is... Uh, the fundamental posture of a believer towards God. And in Luke 9.23, when Jesus explains what it means to be a disciple of his, he says this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, unfortunately, but honestly, today we are prone to relate to God more as though we've given him this advisory role, right? On our, our life council or something like that. God, you, you have... If you've got recommendations for how I should live, go ahead and share those. I welcome to hear those, right? But um, ultimately, I'm just going to do what I want to do. You might convince me, but, but I'm ultimately going to do that. And, and that's different. That's, that's not the Christian life. Um, when we come to faith in Christ, we, we commit, Lord, your ways are now my ways. Uh, submitting to God means recognizing his lordship, his authority over us. It means surrendering our, our wills and our desires to, to him and to his desires. And, and listen, I know we talk about this uh, as if it's yes or no, but there are degrees. You know, you've probably in your life experienced that there are times when you, you are more submitted to the Lord than you are at other times. Um, there is a, a degree to that, and we want our lives to be as as in submission to the Lord as we possibly can. Now, as easy as understanding submission is, as a theory, actually submitting to anyone, even God, can actually be difficult to do. Is, is there some sinful thought or behavior that you find yourself continuing to hold on to? 
Really, that's a real question, is there? Is there some area of your life where you know perfectly well, right? You probably don't even want to tell people about this area because you know perfectly well that you need to submit it to the Lord. And and let me guess, in, in these moments, whatever this issue is, you say to yourself more dismissively, you know what, I probably need to work on that. Or I am working on that, uh, just, just not right now, not, not, not today. You, you feel that deep resistance to just mortifying that sin. And the reason we don't actually want to kill that sin is because it actually offers us something that we want, uh, something that we desire. It might be pleasure or comfort or escape. Maybe it's just a sense of control that you're holding on to, right? And, and the real test then of whether we are living in submission to God, if, if we are living in obedience to God in, in, in areas, is if we are living in obedience to God in areas that are actually difficult, actually hard for us to do it. Um, what, what I mean is this, right? If my, if my 13-year-old, um, if I told her, you know what, eat ice cream for dinner. That's what I want you to do. She would eat ice cream for dinner. No, no problem, right? And, and technically we'd say, oh, she's submitted to, to what her, her father has said in this moment. But that's, that's easy. That's what she really wants to eat for dinner every night anyway. Now, now our, our child, our actual 13-year-old, Berkeley, is, uh, she's kind of weird. She doesn't like rice. I don't know anyone who doesn't like rice besides her. Does anyone not like rice? Anyone want to admit to that? Two of you then. All right, two of you. Three of you. The whole flag family doesn't eat rice. All right. So anyway, she doesn't like rice. And, and so when we have rice for dinner and we tell her you've got to eat some of your rice, that's the moment, right? Her willingness or her unwillingness uh, to do so gets closer to the heart of whether she's actually willing to submit to our parental authority over us. And that's the way it is in life. There are so many things that are easy to submit to God because we like doing them. It's the things we don't want to do that are difficult. Now, if you're truly learning to submit to the Lord, you, you'll really see it in those, those hard to submit areas. So, um, anyway, verse 8 then, right? We, we see this command and promise again, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Listen, if you take this out of context and you throw out all the rest of the scripture, you're going to misunderstand this greatly. Uh, it is God and always God who makes the first move to bring a sinner to faith. James is not talking to people that do not Uh, profess faith or have faith in Jesus. James is here talking to Christians. He's talking to Christians who have wandered away from the the Lord. And James is here talking about Christians, believers, repenting about turning back to God. It is a, it's a hope-giving confirmation then, right? If you will return to God, he wants you to know this, that God will embrace you, will receive you. You think about the, the, the parable of the, the prodigal son, right? This rebellious son, he, he goes away and, 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 and he spends everything he has. He does everything he shouldn't do. And he's terrified to come back to his, to, to, to his father, back to his father's house, thinking there's no way I'll be accepted. Maybe I can just go eat out what, you know, what the pigs are eating. And, and, and the shocking moment is that the moment the father sees him from great distance, right? He doesn't just sit back and wait for him to come and you know, he, the father runs to him, sees him returning, and he wraps his arm around his son in this great big hug. Know this, that no matter how far you have strayed from God, you can come back and find your relationship fully restored. Your, your unfaithfulness will not be held bitterly or any other way against you by God. And so what does drawing near to God actually look like, right? This, this phrase draw near here for one and it's used to describe when when people in the old testament are entering into the temple they're drawing near to god there's an aspect of worship part of drawing near to god is this recommitment to uh, to worship the lord to make a priority towards that drawing near to the lord also looks like 
a recommitment to keeping his commands, to obedience, to, to serving the Lord, to, uh, to meeting with him and his word and in prayer. It's in, and the path to drawing near to God goes through repentance. And that's what this next little section is actually about, right? The second half of verse 8, look at it. Because uh, it seems a little out of, out of the wrong spot here. He says this, uh, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James gets right to it, often. Uh, part of repentance... A huge part of repentance, the first part of repentance, is, is an honest assessment of what we have done. I love the way David Gibson puts this. He says, God, God loves it when we say what is true about ourselves. Out in the light, no shadows, no camouflage, no fig leaves. Can you, can you without qualification, qualification or excuse, just confess to the Lord, confess to God? Lord, I have sinned against you. Not just that generic either. Can you list your sins specifically? God, I have sinned against you this way and that way and this way and so on. Did, and, and did you notice the first line here, right? That repenting involves your, your hands and your heart. Uh, we, we see this language, Psalm 24, 3, right? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Now, do you understand what it means by clean and heart here? Um, hands represent our actions, the things we do, the deeds, that, that sort of thing. Uh, and hearts represents our motives, our intentions, what's, what's driving even those deeds. This is, this is a call for you and I to have holy motives and a call for us to have godly behavior. And, and here's the deal then, right? If, if, you are, if you're really aware of your sin, if you're aware of your sin at just like the core, core level, it leads us to sorrow, and, and that's what James is getting at in verse 9. That's what he's saying here. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Right? Because you, you know your sin. You feel your sin. He goes on. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. He's not saying that's where all of your life is to be lived. It's not that that's supposed to be your disposition as a Christian. It's this idea in the moment that we really stand before God, bare naked, and confess our sins to Him, really, truly to the core level, right, that, that that's the moment uh, when, when these things happen, when we start to feel that. There, there is a place, in other words, there is a place for serious grief when we step back and we see our sin for what it really is. When we really admit that our sin is a big deal that can't be simply dismissed. Sin is, you know, my sin, your sin, it, it ultimately costs Christ his life. You know, for the sake of justice, Jesus willingly bears wrath, wrath that we deserve because of our sin. Uh, and, and there are particular sins, you know, or rather, are there particular sins that you need to mourn over? And I ask that because sometimes we won't deal with them. We kind of put them in the back, just think, don't want to deal with that. Are there things that you are, you are still carrying around with guilt when, when you don't need to be because of what Christ has done for you? If so, uh, you know, this is the path, rather, you know, to restoring your intimacy with God, repentance it. And know this, that for the Christian, for, for you, right, mourning and grief is where repentance begins. But also know this, repentance and grief is not where your story ends. It's not. Don't, don't believe that. Don't think that. Uh, as Jesus said in Matthew 5, 4, right, blessed are those who mourn. There's not a period there. It goes on, for they shall be comforted. Uh, how so? Well, the Apostle Paul uh, in Romans 7, 24, mourning over his sins, he writes this, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And in the very next verse, he gives the answer, right? That it's Jesus Christ who will deliver him. 
And it is Jesus Christ who will and does deliver you. Uh, This we, you know, we see in our final verse today, all that last little bit there. Uh, Verse 10, which says, have a look. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. I mean, we've seen it so many times now, but once again, a command followed by a promise. If you humble yourself, then God will exalt you. And this brings us back to the Christian posture of, of what is genuine humility, right? I, I say genuine because you and I all know this false humility that, that shows up in the world around us. Maybe it pop, pops up on our own hearts, right? This, this idea of let's be humble because we know that's what is the spiritual thing to do. Uh, which is very different than actual humility. Humility that's recognizing not that we should be humble, that that we really are humbled because we know we're sinners. And not in name only, but actually real sinners. Now, humbling yourself means recognizing your your spiritual poverty. There's nothing I can do to make myself worthy for God. It doesn't mean He doesn't love me, but there's nothing I can do to get there, right? And and thus your your desperate need for God to redeem you is what this leads to, because you simply can't do it yourself. You and I, we we need the Holy Spirit to empower us if if we are to really submit to to God's lordship in our life. Uh, Church humility is is a way of life for us. Now, you remember the the, the prophet uh, Micah, right? Micah 6.8 He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This is the Christian life. Paul says in Colossians 3.12, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And what's, what's amazing is that the humility is not in order to keep you down. It's not because you're supposed to be like a worm on the ground all the time. It is so that God can and will lift you up. It is one of those weird things about the Christian faith, the weird things about the way God works, right? That, that humility is the path to actual exaltation. L- listen to this from 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He might exalt you. And listen, you and I are not the exception to this. Listen carefully what Jesus says in Luke 14, 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, to help get a, a vision then for what actual humility looks like, uh, to get in a more practical sense, I, I want to list these ten characteristics of humility, or of the humble person is the way they're worded. Uh, and this list was put together by uh, Carl Grostein, uh, as you study what the scriptures teach about humility. So, so these are the signs that I am, I, I am nurturing humility if, is kind of the way these are worded, right? If I am amazed that the infinite, holy, all-powerful God loves me and wants to have a relationship with me. Right? I am pursuing humility if I often think about how much greater God is than I am. If I understand my weaknesses and I am willing to talk about them with others. Right, that's a, a big part of it. Sometimes we, we don't want anyone else to know, so we, we hide this stuff, and that's where it never gets dealt with, right? So are you willing to talk about it? Four, when I serve others, my primary goals are to bless them and honor God. Five, I enjoy leading so that I can serve others as I use my gifts. Six, flip said, I enjoy uh, following so I can assist the leader and serve others. Seven, I do not mind serving in private ways even if I am never recognized or thanked. Eight, I often ask others for advice. Nine, I regularly study the Bible for guidance and direction and seek to, seek to follow it. And ten, I compare my life to the standards of God. In other words, we, we tend to get prideful when we just look at people 
in categories that we're actually better than them at, right? Whatever it might be. It might be in sports or, or music. It might be in looks or skills of this thing. It might be that you show up to church more than them, so right, you're you know, way more holy than they are. And all those little things, when we start comparing ourselves to others, we can find places where, where we become pride, but, it, but we're called to compare ourselves to God, and that gives us a more accurate understanding. Now, now here's what I want. I, I don't want you to walk out of here today and forget this passage, and I'm serious. Here's what I want you to do. I, I want you to go back to these six verses again, either later today, tomorrow morning, whenever you get up. I know some of you, it's more like noon. Um, my eyes just went to college students, sorry. Um, Right, But whenever you get up, that you actually get into these verses, look at them again. I, I want you to, to, to really read them slowly. Let them shape your prayer. I want you to, to seek genuine humility and, 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 and you know, to ask the Lord to just reveal to you where, where in your life do you really need to come into submission to Him. You know, and in that prayer, you know, you're, you're, you're asking the Lord that He'd lift you up. And, and you know that He will lift you up, both in, in spirit today and, and also quite literally at the resurrection on the last day that we'll be exalted. Now, we're going to end with a, a quote. I want to go back to, to Doriani. I know I quoted him early. There's no rules on how often you can quote a guy, is there? All right. Anyway, I'm going to end with this, and then we'll pray. When we grieve over our sins and turn to him in faith, he will extend his redeeming grace. When we come to God in repentance and humility, he will forgive us and lift us up. Well, let's pray. Uh, Lord, your, your scripture teaches us and we know that you, you oppose the proud. And the last thing in this world that we want is for you to oppose us. And so we need humility. Oh, Holy Spirit, we, we want to resist the devil. We, we want to resist temptation and sin. We, we want to have hearts that are humble. We, we want to feel sorrow when we should feel sorrow. We want to feel... We, we want to have clean hands and, and pure hearts, and we want to receive your grace. And so we, we need the humility that leads us bare naked before you as men and, and women and children, you know, who are in need day after day. And so, Lord, please grant us all, all that we ask in response to these six verses in James today. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.